This morning we find ourselves in Jonah chapter 4, uh, verses 1 to 4 is where we're going to be reading together today as we uh, get close to landing the plane on this series in the book of Jonah. Uh, we've come through chapters 1 to 3 and we're in the first four verses of chapter 4 this morning. I'll read it for our hearing and if you don't have a copy in front of you, it should be on the screen behind me uh, as I read it this morning. In Jonah chapter 4, beginning in verse uh, one, we read, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? This is God's word. You know, I, last, for the last couple of years, I've been battling off and on a staph infection uh, in, actually in my sinus cavities. It's been a very pleasant experience. Um, to say the least, but I've been on multiple rounds of antibiotics and steroids and all kinds of things trying to knock out that infection. Uh, but over the course of that time, I, I learned some things about staph infections. Uh, you just begin to go to www.google.com and type in staph infection and all these pictures, lovely pictures, pull up. Um, but, you know, when you think about different types of infections, staph infections, having spent a lot of time in a locker room as an adolescent, and my wife having spent a lot of time in hospitals as an adult, um, we're very f relatively familiar with staph infections. And staph infections are pretty recognizable oftentimes whenever they emerge on your skin because it starts as this kind of red-looking rash. And as it progresses and develops, if it's not treated, then it turns into um, really, some of those really lovely pictures that you see on Google.com image searches. Uh, and it begins to eat away at the skin. The bacteria begins to destroy the tissues of the body. So st while staph infections oftentimes are very recognizable, sepsis, on the other hand, is har much harder to detect. Sepsis is typically a blood infection. Whenever that infection in your body begins to turn on itself, and begins to destroy its own tissues and its own organs as it tries to fight off that infection. While staph, you can see on the outside, sepsis is, much, is on the inside. It, it destroys the body from the inside out oftentimes, whereas staph would destroy the body from the outside in many times. Right? And so you, when you think about those two types of infections, one is very visible, the other one oftentimes very invisible and can be fatal if it's not properly diagnosed. And whenever you think of the way the book of Jonah has progressed up to this point, the story that's been told here, you might say this, that while Nineveh had staff, a staff infection that was very recognizable because of their wickedness, because of their sin, because of their unrighteousness, because of their violence and their viciousness, Jonah had sepsis. It was something inside that couldn't be seen until he was put in this particular situation. Right? Because one of the things that emerges from Jonah chapter 4 in the first four verses is this, just, it seems like a radical truth, but it's this, is that oftentimes we do not know what's in us until we're put into a situation where we're tested. Because oftentimes what we're in reveals what's in us. 
And that's exactly what we see in Jonah's life in the beginning of Jonah chapter 4. Right? Jonah is outraged by what God has done whenever the people of Nineveh repented of their sins. Jonah is beside himself. Right? And so that, that what's in Jonah, that, that blood-borne infection, right, begins to show itself in very visible ways because of the situation that God puts Jonah in. And the, this difference between staph and sepsis that you see in Nineveh and Jonah, listen, it translates into our day as well, into the lives of people who are raised either outside of a traditional religious environment or those who are raised inside a traditional religious environment. Oftentimes those raised outside of traditional religious environments, they have what we might say is raging staph infections, okay? And so there are things externally that you can see, sins that are so evident to the eye, whereas many times those raised inside of traditional religious environments, they are infected with sepsis, things that you can't see, things that are in the heart, and you don't know that they're there until you're put into a, a situation to reveal them. And that sepsis that, that, that really lies underneath the surface in many of us, right? The social psychologist by the name of Jonathan Haidt, he concluded from his research that self-righteousness is the normal human condition. And we're always wanting to justify ourselves in some way, shape, or form. And if you think about spiritual sepsis, it is the presence of self-righteousness. That is the infection which is so prevalent in the, our hearts and our lives. And so the question isn't necessarily, is it present in me, but am I able to discern where it's present in me? Where it is. And so that's what I want to help us do this morning as we look at Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, and consider how do we discern, how do we recognize self-righteousness when it's at work in our lives? Because I think we see it very clearly in the work, in the, at work in the life of Jonah. And the first indicator, I believe, on the kind of dashboard of our lives that begins to light up is this, is that self-righteousness it will oftentimes produce what I would call a spiritual vertigo in our lives. A spiritual vertigo. Now, vertigo is a feeling that you get. That, that over 40% of Americans, right, or grown adults, get this experience at some point in their lives of spiritual vertigo. It's a feeling like you're moving or the world around you is spinning whenever you're actually sitting still or standing still. But everything is spinning around you. Right? And there are two major types of vertigo. One is central. It happens in the brain. The other is peripheral. It happens in the inner ear. And the most common one is in the inner ear. And there's three reasons oftentimes that that would occur in the inner ear. The first one is whenever these tiny calcium particles um, are dislodged from their normal location and they collect in the inner ear. The second one is that an inner ear disorder thought to be caused by a buildup of fluid and changing of pressure on the inside of the ear. And the third one is oftentimes on the heels of some type of inner ear infection or some kind of issue going on inside that inflames the nerves that would help the body maintain its balance. And so these things that are happening inside the ear affect the rest of the body. And essentially what happens is this, is whenever what regulates your body's equilibrium is thrown out of order. You feel like the whole world is spinning around you. And you can't make heads or tails of it. Right? 
from the particles, from the fluid, from the pressure or the infection or the inflammation. And spiritual vertigo is very similar to this. Spiritual vertigo, people will tell you, doctors will tell you that vertigo is not a cause. It is a symptom of something else going on in your body. And the same is true about spiritual vertigo. Spiritual vertigo is a symptom of an underlying issue. And you, you feel it feels like the world is spinning around you because your spiritual equilibrium has been disrupted oftentimes because your expectations have not been met. And when your expectations aren't met and your equilibrium is disrupted, it feels like the world is coming apart around you. This is what happens to Jonah. Listen, when God relents from bringing disaster on Nineveh, it disrupts his equilibrium. Look at what he says in verse 3 because he feels like the world is spinning around him. He feels like the world is coming apart so much so that in verse 3, he asks God, would you take my life? Right? Just take the breath from my lungs. Right? Take the synapses from my brain to cause them to stop firing so that it stops telling my heart to beat or my lungs to breathe. Would you crush my heart and give me a heart attack because I don't want to live any longer. I don't want to live any longer. And he, so he, he's, he's praying to God, right? And as he opens the prayer, he opens with all the reasons and excuses why he ran away. And then he closes the prayer by asking God to kill him. <laughs> he says, it would be better for me to die than to live. Apparently, what Jonah sees, when he sees what the Lord has done, he sees it to be so evil And he is so angry that he would rather die than live in a world where God was merciful to his nation's national and political enemies who were morally bankrupt. In other words, if there's no divine justice for Jonah that would be meted out to these individuals, these Assyrians or these Ninevites who were violent and vicious, those who have this different moral compass than he did to his enemies, then he doesn't want to live in a world like that. Because that kind of world doesn't make sense to Jonah. It doesn't, it's, it's so disrupted his equilibrium that he can't make heads or tails of life and he wants it to come to an end. You might say that Jonah is the kind of individual who doesn't want tried and convicted thieves on a cross to be forgiven and promised paradise upon their death in their last hours of life. He wants the one who can be, have, have ultimate authority and ultimate say over who can and who can't be forgiven. Who's worthy of grace. Who's worthy of mercy. Who's worthy of God's love. Jonah wants to be able to make that call. See, one of the ways that you recognize self-righteousness at work in your life is that whenever your expectations are, go unmet, that it throws your whole world into a tailspin. And everything begins to spin around you and you can't make heads or tails of it and you don't want to live in a world in which things don't make sense and match your expectations. Now listen, not all this type of vertigo, right, is caused by self-righteousness. I, <clears throat> whenever you receive a diagnosis that you didn't expect or whenever you get a bill in the mail from the IRS that you weren't counting on, Right, whenever those kinds of things happen, it does cause you to go into a bit of a tailspin. But the next two indicators of self-righteousness, listen, are key because if, they, if, if that vertigo leads to these things, right, then there's a sure bet that self-righteousness is the cause of it under the surface. It's just a symptom on the outside of something else. 
right? There can be legitimate pain without there being self-righteousness. There can be legitimate hurt without there being self-righteousness. But if it leads to these next two indicators, then the source of that vertigo is a self-righteousness in your life. And the second one is this. Self-righteousness, it kindles in us an unrighteous anger. An unrighteous anger. Last week, our, our family had the chance to spend uh, several days up in Broken Bow, Oklahoma. So uh, we rented a cabin up there, and we went up for the week um, on spring break. And so we had the opportunity uh, to do a little hiking, a little fishing, which I know that doesn't surprise many of you in the room. Um, but also every evening, one of the things that uh, particularly my daughter loves to do is to build fires. Okay? <laughs> Does concern me a little bit at times, but she loves to build fires. And so she helped me build a campfire every night in the fire pit. And so we would stack the wood, uh, make a little log cabin fire, and then she would go and collect all the pine straw she could possibly find and all the small little twigs that would break and snap because they were dry wood. And she would come and she would stack up the pine straw, set the twigs on top of that, and we would put it right down in the center of those logs that we stacked up. And so we would take the lighter and then we would light the pine straw, which would then engulf in flames, which would catch those small twigs on fire. And as they began to burn, they would let off a flame that caught the larger logs on fire on top. Now, that oftentimes was not enough for her because she wanted, uh, she would go, all the pine straw she had collected, right, she would just stand there next to the fire and she would take a handful every once in a while and she would throw it in. All, right? all those little small twigs and branches and pine straw, and what would it do? You know what it did. It went, right? Because all that dry stuff, small stuff, unsubstantial stuff, it burns so quickly and so hot that it just, the fire just shoots up. And she would stand there with this big smile on her face as she saw what she had done with the fire as it rose above her head at times because of the things that she was throwing into it. Paper plates and cardboard and pine straw and twigs. Right? Anything that we had that would burn, it was going into the fire. Right? But that kindling was so important in the fire. Right? Because without the kindling, it's hard to just stick a log out there and put a lighter on it and catch it aflame. But the kindling is so important because as you stack that kindling and it builds and builds and builds, it enables the fire to ignite and burn. And listen, what Jonah has stacked in his soul is kindling that catches fire here. In fact, the word in verse 1, in verse 1 of Jonah chapter 4, when it says that Jonah was angry, that word literally translated from the Hebrew means heat or burning. Right? So something is hot in Jonah. So the picture here is that Jonah's anger is kindled like a fire that begins to burn and rage against who? Against the Lord. For what he had done. For the ways that he had acted. There is a stark contrast here in the text between Jonah's response to God's relenting and God's response to Nineveh's repenting. When Nineveh repents, God is merciful. And when God relents, Jonah is enraged. 
and his anger is burning like a fire because there are certain presuppositions, certain understandings of the way the world ought to work that are stacked in Jonah's heart that as soon as the spark hits them, it catches them ablaze and they begin to rage out of control. In fact, he goes further than just being angry. In verse 1, out of his self-righteous anger, he begins to accuse God of being corrupt and evil. In fact, that's the word literally, when, when my, the translation I read this morning out of the ESV, the word displeased literally means to do evil in the sight of. In other words, in Jonah's eyes, God's mercy toward the people of Nineveh was an act of evil. Something that ought not be done. See, one way that you can identify that sepsis of self-righteousness is not just the presence of vertigo and your world spinning around you, but when your world starts spinning around you, is there something that catches fire in your soul? Because there have been ideas and understandings that have been stacked there over time that you thought that it was this transactional relationship that you had with God, that if you did X, God would do Y. And that if they did X, God would do Y. There's always an equation. Right? When expectations are not met, is, let me ask you a question. When your expectations are not met, is God still good? Is He still good? Right? Jonah stands back and accuses God of evil. And erupts in anger. He cannot fathom the Lord being merciful to people outside of His people. To the good Jewish boys and girls. And listen, this, this, this idea did not die with Jonah. <laughs> okay? It carried forward into the New Testament because Jesus would speak to the Pharisees in very stark ways. He would call them whitewashed tombs. He says externally, right? You don't have any staph infection But internally, there is sepsis that is raging in your bloodstream on account of self-righteousness. You're like full of of dead man's bones. He talks about how the plate and the cup on the outside, they're they're all clean, but on the inside, they're filthy. So that understanding did not die with Jonah, but it continued in the New Testament and it continues into our day as well. And listen, church, this is why the Gospel is so offensive to so many. This is one of the reasons why being saved by grace through faith and in Christ is an offensive message. Right? At times, I haven't always been very careful with my words and at times I've been offensive to other people um, in personal conversation. At times I've probably said things offensive from the pulpit and I've had to repent of those things. But listen, as a preacher, I don't need to say offensive things because the message that I'm preaching is offensive enough to many people within our cultural context. Because when we say, whosoever believes on Him shall not perish but have everlasting life, oftentimes in our minds, we have this character sketch of who the whosoever could be and who the whosoever can't be. We cannot fathom how God could be gracious and merciful to a gang member who's indiscriminately sprayed a street with bullets. Or how God could be merciful and gracious to a cop killer. 
or to a police officer who killed an unarmed motorist or to a child abuser or to a terrorist. We cannot fathom how God could be gracious and merciful to a pastor who embezzled money from his church or cheated on his spouse or abused his authority. We cannot fathom how God would be merciful and gracious to a financial advisor who ran the biggest Ponzi scheme the world has ever seen if they come to repentance. We can't fathom it. How God would be gracious to the drug dealer who sold to and through the 12-year-olds on the corner or to the young adult struggling with same-sex attraction. We cannot fathom those things. Because in our minds, we have stacked this kindling in our souls and have an understanding of who the whosoever could be and who they can't be, just like Jonah did. And so whenever something happens that defies our expectations, disrupts our equilibrium like Jonah's was, and something that spark is set in our soul, does it engulf us with a flame? And do we rise up in anger accusing God of being corrupt? Self-righteousness kindles unrighteous anger in our lives. Listen, there is righteous anger, right? <laughs> there is. When you look at Jesus going into the temple and turning over the tables and, and chastising those who were exchanging, who had corrupt practices of exchanging one bird for another bird and telling them that the, this one bird was defective and they needed their bird in order to make the offering and they were changing out money, all those things. But listen, so often in our minds, we, in our hearts, we justify our anger saying it's all righteous anger. But when so often it's built on self-righteous premises and is actually unrighteous anger. Because these people aren't like me. Self-righteousness kindles unrighteous anger. But third, listen, self-righteousness, it abuses the Bible. It abuses the Bible. When Jonah begins to berate God in verses 1-4, to he uses the Bible in a way that seeks to pit God against himself. He pits God against God. In verse 2, Jonah prays and he opens the prayer with an explanation or excuse for his running from God's original commission when God called him in 1-1 and sent him to Nineveh. He says, this is why when I was still in my country, I fled to Tarshish. Right? You want to be fully transparent? Here's, here's absolute vulnerability. This is why I ran. And, God, and Jonah says the reason for his running is because he knew something about God based upon Exodus 34, 6 and 7 and how the Lord had revealed Himself to Moses. He says, I knew you were a God who was gracious, a God who was merciful, a God who had a long fuse, who overflowed with love and responded to people turning from their sin by turning from your promised disaster and judgment. As he prays, he quotes Exodus 34, 6 and 7, where God reveals this about himself to Moses, that he'd be one who would relent from disaster. But Jonah, listen, he does what we so often do and stops short of reciting the whole verse. Because in, the, in verse 7, the Lord goes on to say that by no means would he leave the guilty unpunished. He says, I knew you to be this God who is soft, 
I knew you to be this God who was loving and there were no consequences for anyone's actions. I knew you to be this God. Right? He has this caricature in his mind of God based upon a portion of a verse of the Bible in the Old Testament. But he doesn't go the next step to see that God by no means would leave the guilty unpunished. In other words, Jonah has a very simplistic understanding of God who would not dispense any judgment on the unrighteous and wicked. And he uses that text. Listen, he takes that portion of of Exodus 34 and he uses it to justify his bitterness, his indignation, his anger, and his hatred of the Assyrians. He abuses the Scriptures. and uses them to prop up his own righteousness. Jonah attempts to selectively use the Bible to justify himself, which is a pattern of self-righteousness in our own lives. I love the way Tim Keller said it in his book, Rediscovering Jonah. He said this, he said, one example of this is the scholar who dissects the Scriptures to set it against other passages of Scripture in a way that undermines the Bible's authority so we don't have to obey it. In other words, this verse says this, but this verse says this, so I guess they just can't, they like cross each other out, counteract each other, and we don't have to listen to either one of them. He says, another example is the simple Christian who opens his Bible to find himself justified against non-Christians or against Christians who hold the same views or do not hold the same views and are arguments which show how far superior their position is to that of others. See, he says, whenever we read the Bible in order to say, aha, I'm, I knew I was right. Whenever we read it to feel righteous and wise in our own eyes, we're using the Bible to make ourselves into fools. Or worse, since the Bible says the mark of evil fools is to be wise in their own eyes. In other words, he says, if we feel more righteous as we read the Bible, we're misreading it. We're missing its central message. We are reading and using the Bible rightly only when it humbles us, critiques us, and encourages us with God's love and grace despite our flaws. He says, if you read the Bible and you walk away from it feeling more puffed up in your chest about how righteous and good and right you are, he says, you're misreading it. You're not understanding the main storyline of the Bible. But if you walk away feeling humbled by it, encouraged and nourished by it, Loved by God in spite of all of your sin and all of your flaws and failures, then you're understanding it rightly. Not walking away and saying, I knew I was right and I knew they were wrong. That is a prime mark of self righteousness. In fact, he goes on to say in his book, he says, the one other example we have of anyone quoting and twisting the Bible in the Bible. To God is when Satan does it against Jesus in the wilderness. Indeed, Jonah's use of the Bible, he says, is not bringing him joy, but rather taking him to the brink of despair. And he gets so far that he asks God to take away his life. Church, be humbled by the Bible. Be humbled by it. And listen, I will be the first one to say, I have not always been. I can remember in college, as I read the scriptures, right, living, living on the campus of a private Christian school, okay, um, and 
watching what this group of how this group of people lived and how this group of people lived and how this group of people these little segments of society on that campus i can remember being a religious studies student and reading the scriptures and as i read them i was always thinking about the sins of others never about my own i remember in coming to this church Eight years ago. And as I sought to be faithful to what God had called me to do in preaching the word faithfully, I felt like there ought to be a just reward for that. And yet all I could see, at least externally, was the church falling apart and unraveling around me. And it led me to a place of, like Jonah, Despair and brokenness and pain. And I can say this, that God, looking back on it now, I wouldn't trade that experience for the world and I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Because in that process, God was pulling things out of me that I didn't know were still in me. Because what I was in was revealing what was in me. And I would come to the Scriptures and read and I would think about how here I am trying to be faithful and I would compare myself to the apostles and their preaching in the book of Acts. I didn't do all this publicly. It was all private there somewhere secretly in my heart. But I would see they were preaching and people were being saved and baptized. The church was growing exponentially and here I am preaching and the church is withering and dying on the vine. And for me, that vertigo began to cause my world to spin and I began to sense the anger kindled in my soul. And I was trying to use the Bible to justify it. I don't know if you've ever been there. I know I have. Be humbled by the Scriptures. Right, the rightful response of Jonah in this moment and would have been the rightful response for me seven years ago would have been to take all of that uncertainty, all of that fear, all of that anxiety, as Matt let us pray through this morning, to the feet of God Himself like the psalmists do so often. Rather than rather than shaking my fist at God, accusing Him of abandoning me and burning with anger. It is a sepsis, church, that will take your life from the inside out. It almost took mine. But look at how God responds. Look at how God responds. In verse 4, God asked Jonah a penetrating question, which haunts each and every one of us in those moments in which we sense self righteousness emerging. It's this question Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Do you do well? The word do well literally means is it good, Jonah? Is it pleasing, Jonah? 
In other words, God says to Jonah, you've accused me of doing evil. So I suppose that puts you in the position, Jonah, of having the moral high ground. So, so, so Jonah, just tell me, do you, d- does that mean that your burning anger against my mercy and grace is a good thing? Listen, and this haunts every self-righteous individual. As I said at the outset, the question is not, am I self-righteousness, but can I recognize it? Do I see it? When the lighter is lit, do I see how it begins to kindle into anger? Do I recognize that I'm taking, distorting, and twisting portions of the Bible to justify my feelings, my anger? When the world begins to spin around me, do, do I begin to question whether or not God is even good any longer? Are you able to recognize it? Can you discern it? Do you see where you are prone to it? And God asks us that question, do you do well? Is it right for you in this position, in this situation, to be angry? Church, do you sense where you're prone to that? Is it around areas of morality? Listen, maybe it is for you. Maybe it's around areas of morality. Maybe your life externally looks cleaner than the life of your neighbor who is living next door. Is it around areas of personality? Some of us, because we are type A, like we are wired and productive and task-oriented and accomplishment and achievement-focused. We look at other people who run the race a little bit slower, have a little bit more laxed pace of life. We look at them as if they are somehow inferior to us and we are superior to them. Is it around personality? Is it around areas of political policy? Right, do, you, do, you, do you look down at others who vote differently than you do? Right, there's, there's all kinds of ways in which self-righteousness creeps into our lives. And the question that God asked Jonah is essentially this. He's asking him to reflect on the rightness of his response. Is it right, Jonah, for you to feel the way that you do? And I think so often we refuse to face that question. We assume that it's right for us to feel the way that we do rather than reflecting on whether it's right for us to respond in the way that we have responded. And again, this has not ceased with Jonah. Right? You fast forward into the New Testament and you see Jesus tell a story in Luke chapter 15. He tells a story about a man who had two sons. And one of those sons is the older and one of those sons is the younger. The older son has been faithful and diligent and sacrificial and obedient all of his life. Stayed close to the father, served the father, did whatever the father asked at whatever time the father asked it. The other son comes to his father and says, Father, give me my inheritance. I don't want to live under your roof any longer. I want to go set out and be my own man. And so his father gives him his inheritance. The man moves off to a distant country, squanders his wealth in wild living, the text says, insofar as here you have this young Jewish man who is now feeding pigs, an unclean animal. He's at the bottom of the barrel. He's reached the end of his rope. 
And he looks up and he says, listen, even the servants in my father's house have it better than I do right now. If I go and throw myself upon his mercy, maybe he would be gracious to me. So he returns. And the father, before that younger son can even reach the porch, the father comes running to the son, embraces him, puts his robe on him, gives him the ring, slaughters the fatted calf, throws a feast for this young son of his who had abandoned his family, rebelled, but now has returned. And in the midst of the feast, the eldest son is not present and the father seeks him out. And as the father seeks him out, he asks him, where are you? Essentially, where are you? The same question he asked to our first parents in the garden and their sin, he asked to the eldest son. And the eldest son reveals what had been in his heart all along. And what does he say? I've been here all my life. And yet you never even offered me one of the younglings, one of the goats, one of the other animals out there to throw a party with my friends. I've done everything that you've asked me to do dutifully and obediently. Yet you've never slaughtered one of the animals for me. That's exactly the heart that's operating in Jonah. Exactly the heart that's operating in Jonah. There's a picture of self-righteousness. And just as self-righteousness can invade an individual heart, listen church, it can take hold corporately as well in a church body. Remember I said, some of you who were here last week, I remember I said, right, the book of Jonah, like every other book in the Bible, had an author and an audience. Okay? Most conservative scholars, I said last week, believe, and I'll tell you why next week, I believe this too, that Jonah is the source for this material, whether he actually wrote it by hand or he orally transmitted it and it eventually got written down. But he's the source for it. And the audience is not the Assyrians, it's not the Ninevites, but it's the Jewish people of his day, of his time, and those who would come after him. Why? Why do they need the story of Jonah? Because self-righteousness had gripped their hearts as well. And when it collectively grips the heart of not just a person, but a people, it's like a cancer that spreads. And listen, I have seen it in my own life. I have seen it in churches that I've been a part of. I've seen the ways in which people have been quarantined to particular uh, like cattle into particular boxes because of socioeconomics, because of race, because of particular types of sins that they've committed, because of their past and the baggage that they brought with them, because of who they used to run with and where they used to go. All of these things. When they walk through the doors of a church, people will say, they don't look like the whosoever I imagined in my mind. Is there a heart like Jonah in us? I know there has been in me. And I suspect that at times there has been in us. But if we as a church are going to be a place, there's a gospel outpost, right, that does 
in the footsteps of Jesus what the elder brother in Luke chapter 15 would not do. And embraces those whose lives have been destroyed by the the outward staff infection of sin. If we're going to embrace them, and listen, we as a people have to continually repent of, the same way the Jewish people did, continually repent of that inner sepsis of self-righteousness. But the good news, church, is this. Is that in the same way that God doesn't smite Jonah because of his self-righteousness and crush him. But he pursues him with that question. Jonah, do you do well to be angry? He's pursuing me, he's pursuing you, and he's pursuing us. So that after he continues that work of progressive deliverance from those pieces of kindling that have been stacked in our lives, those assumptions and presuppositions that have laid there dormant until we've been put into certain seasons, as he begins to remove those things, that like Jonah, he's able to use our story collectively as a church body and your story personally to be winsome and to reach those who are far from God. See, like, unlike Unlike Jonah, Jesus was willing to love his enemies. To love them. You know who that includes? Me. Because I don't know if you've read the book of Romans lately. But I seem to remember a verse that says something like, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. He loved his enemies and he loved them all the way to the cross. To give us the power to do the same. So would you pray with me this morning that God would use us to do that very thing. Father, we thank you today for the work of Christ loving us all the way to the cross while we were yet enemies of yours. God, whether it be through the staff infection of unrighteousness or the sepsis of self-righteousness, God, both are deadly and destructive. Both separate us from you. But you overcame both by living a perfect, sinless life. Your son living a perfect, sinless life. through active obedience, living in my place, in our place, and through His substitutionary death and giving Himself for sin and sinners. He loved us. May we do the same to those who set themselves against Your Word and against Your will, even against Your church. May we sacrificially love them in the way that Christ has loved us. Help us to discern those areas in which we are prone to self-righteousness in our own lives. And Father, at times, I, I, 
This is a bold and maybe scary prayer. Would you put us into seasons that would surface those things in our lives that are destroying us from the inside out? Those things that we cannot recognize in any other way. And help us to see whether, there are, whether we are abusing the Scriptures to twist and distort them to justify our own feelings, our own anger, and whether or not the vertigo spiritually that we experience, like Jonah did, when the world around him is spinning and he wants to just have it all end. Whether that's coming from a place of legitimate pain, sorrow and sadness, or a place of self-righteous anger. Help us to see that. And help us to be gracious to one another. When we see or perceive what we might believe to be that in other people's lives. Because we ourselves are so prone to it as well. We thank you that even in the midst of our sin, God, that your hand is mighty to save. You're strong enough to hold us firm and fast and to keep us for yourself. And as we rejoice in that truth this morning, God, may we lift our hearts and voices celebrating your grace, celebrating your mercy, celebrating the fullness of who you are, that indeed justice has come and it's fallen upon Christ for all who are in him. That by no means did you clear the guilty, but indeed your justice fell upon a substitute for those who have placed their faith in Christ. May we rejoice in that truth today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.